please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. This morning's public reading comes from Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. morning. Uh, and with that too, I think um, send relief or yeah, send disaster relief is something that our denomination uses to respond to situations like this. So if you feel led to give to something, you're like, where do I go? You can look up a send disaster relief and it's, that would be a place where your funds would be safe and they would definitely would be used. And then hopefully over time will be utilized by Reed and Shelby and Chris and Tatum as they continue to try to help. But the reality is, is even now, organizations from outside, there's just so much going on. Getting people there is hard. So that's why they're going with a local church at the moment, because it's just easier to move because they're already in country. So there's a lot of very serious things. Please continue to pray. If that's something you feel led to do, uh, I want to commend, send relief to you just to ensure that your money gets to a good place. It'll be used wisely. Uh, so with that, let's open to the book of Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 41. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 41. And just before I get too far into this, because I can just feel it already happening in my voice, if someone, maybe Lauren, if I can volunteer you, if you could track down a glass of water for me, I know that is so awkward to ask for, but I can already feel it. There is, and I know there are cups in the kids' area, so <laughs> thank you very much, and I'll just drink that awkwardly when that comes back, because singing and then preaching is a lot of expelling moisture, and I can already feel my vocal cords feeling it. So, sorry about that. Let's look at Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. That's Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 41 is where you want to be in your Bibles. Today's title is, What Shall We Do? So just to catch us up, we've been working through the book of Acts a little bit uh, at a time, but just to remind us all for who have been here, for those who haven't, so that you can be caught up. Here's what has happened so far in the book of Acts. Jesus is in the book of Acts at the very beginning, and he tells his disciples to go and wait for the promise of the Father, which is the Holy Spirit. And they're going to go wait for the Holy Spirit to come down on them, and that is his promise to them. While they wait, they are sitting there, they're in prayer, these disciples, these apostles, uh, they choose another apostle, and then 
lo and behold, God's promise comes true. And the Spirit of God falls on these early Christians, these disciples, and there's roughly 120 of them at that time uh, gathered in this place, and the Spirit falls on them, and they begin to be able to speak in the languages of the people who are gathered in Jerusalem as a sign to those people that God is doing something miraculous and amazing. It's a total miracle. They're speaking in these languages, and these people are saying, how can these guys, who we know don't speak our native language, they're talking, and I can understand everything they're saying in my native language. And what they're doing when they're doing that is they're proclaiming the mighty works of God. So in particular, that Jesus has died for sin and that he is the Messiah, that he rose from the dead. But there's scoffers in the crowd and those scoffers say, they're just drunk. They're babbling, they're going crazy. Maybe they just don't have ears to hear and so they can't understand like the others can. We don't know what's going on, but they accuse them of being drunk. And so Peter stands up and this was last week's sermon. If you can remember from what Jimmy said, thank you so much. I know this is gonna be an issue. Sounds good. All right, I'll put this out of my way so I don't step on it. And so Peter stands up and he says, they're not drunk, it's only 9 a.m. in the morning, but rather they've been filled with the Spirit of God. And he quotes from an Old Testament prophet, the prophet Joel, who said that this would happen. Joel, when he's writing, is inspired by the Holy Spirit thousands of years before this happens to say, when the Messiah comes, he is going to give this gift and everyone shall prophesy or proclaim those mighty works of God. Men and women, young and old, no matter who you are, they were all doing it. And that's what we see happening. This group of disciples, which included men and women, young and old, all began to proclaim the mighty works of God under the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he comes and he fills them and equips them for mission. And Peter says the reason why this can happen is because the Messiah really did come and his name was Jesus. And he looks at him and he doesn't mince any words. And he says, but you crucified him and you killed him. But God, and he quotes from some other passages of scripture, said, would not let his body undergo decay. So God raised him from the dead. And then he continues to quote even more scripture and says, and God and he ascended to the right hand of the father. And he tells them that's what happened. That is the gospel. When we use that word, gospel, you see it on our signs, those things, it is one word to tell that big story, that God sent his son Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin, meaning you and God are not cool, just the two of you. You have sinned against him and his righteous wrath is on you. Something has to pay for sin. And Jesus came and he died on the cross and he was that payment for sin. If you put your trust and faith in Jesus, that's what Peter was telling them. If you follow Jesus, recognize him as Lord, you'll be saved for your sins because not only did Jesus die for your sin, but he also rose again from the dead and he conquered your sin and your death when he did that. And if you put your faith in him and him alone, you can be saved. And they look at him and they hear that gospel message and they ask the question that we want to look at this morning, brothers, what shall we do? So that's the title of today's sermon. And that is the goal of the message. What must you do to be made right with God? If you have heard the gospel and it is moving in you, what does God require from you? What does he want you to do? And that's what we wanna look at this morning, looking at Acts chapter two, verses 37 through 41. I'm gonna read 
the passage in its entirety now. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So what must we do? Number one, we must be cut to the heart. Looking at verse 37. Now they heard this and they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now before we get too far in this, we talk about what it means to be cut to the heart. We need to answer this question. What is the heart? Is he talking about the literal organ in your chest and welcome to church, we're gonna lay you down, crack your chest open and cut you in the heart? Of course not, that would be crazy. So what is the heart then? Is it Valentine's Day things? It's just how we feel and that's what that means or, or is the heart something more? Well, Proverbs 4, 23 tells us this. It says, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. In other words, It's out of your heart that everything that you do springs from it. Jesus says this in Luke 6, 43 through 44. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does the bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes, ah, grapes picked from a bramble bush, and I need 45. Whoopsies. We have the technology. this is really important. But the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Again, another place in scripture showing us that the things you say, the things you do, the thoughts that you have come out of your heart. So one way to say, what is the heart? It's the very core of who we are as people. That is what the heart is. It's who you are. Up on the screen, we'll have a little graphic here, I think, to help demonstrate this. And, and I had Kindle kind of make it, and I brought it down just a little bit, but the content kind of comes from this, this book called The Dynamic Heart in Daily Life. It's by a man named Jeremy Pierre, who is a professor at Southern Seminary. And he explains the heart in the book and what the Bible talks about. And he talks about these three things. You can kind of see there, it's what you believe or what you think. He would call that the cognitive, what the effective, what we feel, and also the volitional or what you will or do, the things that you do. And here's what we're saying. What makes a person a person? What makes me, me? What makes Josh, Josh, and Kim, Kim, and Charlie, Charlie? You guys are the ones, I guess, making good eye contact right now. But that's what it is. What makes us, us? And the reality is, is the things you think and believe, the way that you feel, the things that you do, that's what makes you, you. And then in all of that as well, the way our hearts work is the things that I believe and 
think will always impact the way that I feel. And the way that I feel will always impact the way the things that I do and all vice versa. What we find about human beings is we're actually really complex. It's not as simple as like, just think the right way and then you'll feel the right way and then you'll do the right thing. But we're all these things together, your past memories, your past experience, who you are, the what is happening to you in this moment or that one impacts you. So it's all that you feel, all that you do, all that you believe, all comes together and that is the heart. That is what a person is. And this passage tells us that they were cut to that. They were cut to their heart. Everything that they were, the things that they believed, the things that they felt, the things that they did. The gospel message comes in and it impacts the totality of the person. And so I asked Kendall to put a little crown at the top of this because that's what I want to say is that's what a Christian is. A Christian is a person who submits all that they think and believe, all that they feel and all that they do to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what it looks like to be a Christian. And so when he's telling them, what shall we do? Because they are cut to the heart. That's what we see. And so if we go back to our passage, we see that they hear that they're cut to the heart and then they ask, what shall we do? And what I want to suggest is that they heard that gospel message from Peter in his sermon. They heard the facts. They heard the truth. And that impacted what they believed. They impacted what they thought. Who is the Messiah? They might have thought, well, maybe he's still coming. Peter said, no, 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 he came and he died and he rose and he ascended. Those facts changed the way they thought about God and themselves. And it just didn't change the way they think. It wasn't just some kind of cognitive exercise. They're cut to their heart. They're pierced to it. They felt it in their chest. Because Peter doesn't mess around when he preaches that message and he looks at them and he says, Jesus, whom you crucified. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so he's saying to these people, people who were gathered in Jerusalem, who came for the Passover, and if you can think back to the Gospels, Pontius Pilate, the governor of the area, he brings out these two men. One is Barabbas, the other is Jesus. And he's trying to get Jesus off the hook. Barabbas killed somebody. And he says, who do you go want? And they say, give us Barabbas. And then they say, what do you do with Jesus? And the crowd cries out, crucify him, crucify him. The reality is, it's probably the same crowd. The people who cried crucify him 50 days earlier are the same people now who stand in this crowd, who are cut to the heart. And Peter says, you killed him. But we have to see the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, 5, he says this, talking about that Messiah who would come, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was his chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. When Peter cries out, you crucified him and killed him, he says it to that crowd, but he says it to me and you as well. That all are guilty that all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which is all of us, are the ones who put Jesus on the cross. That's what he died for. 
And as they hear that reality and wrestle with that, that's when they cry out in Acts 2.37, brothers, what shall we do? All they think, all they feel, and now they're asking all that they are doing, what are we supposed to do, is being submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. They want to know, this is true, what do I do about it? Because the gospel affects the whole person, Peter responds with an answer that will require a wholehearted and a whole person kind of response. Because point number two this morning is this, we must repent, follow, and be filled. That's what Peter says to them in verse 38. He says, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So first he comes and he tells them they need to repent. To repent is to turn away. Repentance admits that we are wrong. Ephesians 4, 21 through 24, Paul says this of people who are already Christians, these Gentiles, people who are non-Jewish, who became Christians. He says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, so saying you heard the gospel, as the truth is in Jesus, to put your, off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Again, we see that feeling, who we are, what we want, what we think, what we believe. It's all of us. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. He puts off the old and puts on the new. That's such a good picture of repentance. I once heard a pastor say, we dress for the job. You take off that old way of living and you put on a new one is what Peter is telling them. He's saying, and it has to be wholehearted. means you're not gonna think the same things you thought before. Even just the facts about life. You no longer think there might be multiple gods or more ways to God. No, 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 no. You submit yourself to what God says about himself. There is one God and the only way to the Father is through the Son, Jesus. And you're saying, I believe that now, casting off old beliefs. You say things like, I no longer want to feel uh, anger or, or frustration towards other people. The things that, that I feel because of what I've, how I've changed, that begins to change over time as well. And the things then that I do change also. All of me changes when I repent. I turn away from evil. I turn toward what is wrong. And then Peter tells them, and be baptized every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. It's a good note to say that baptism is something that is for each individual. You're not a Christian because your parents are Christian. You're not a Christian because you were born in America. People are Christians and they are baptized, each and every one of you, he says. You must all respond to the gospel. We must all ask the question, what do I do? He tells them to be baptism. Baptism is a church ordinance now, and it was something that Jesus himself did to complete all righteousness. And it symbolizes the cleansing of our sin, the dying with Christ and being united to him, and then raising up from the dead with him as we come up out of the water so that we might walk in a new life. That's why at our church we baptize by immersion because of the symbol that it is. 
You're being completely cleansed. All of you is touched by the water. You're being completely dead to sin. All of you goes under it. And all of you comes back up because you are walking in a new life. Baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, which is to say to be baptized in his reputation, in his character, and his authority. Again, it is no longer my reputation that makes me right before God. It's the reputation of Jesus in his name, the one who lived a perfect and holy life. It's no longer my broken and sinful character that makes me right before God. It's Jesus. It's no longer my authority that I'm going to live under. I'm being baptized into Christ, and I will follow him as the authority of my life. Peter tells them, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Now there are some who will look at this, and I'll get to this again in a moment, who look for for the forgiveness of sin as if like, because I'm baptized, now my sin is forgiven. But that little preposition, and Greek is just a little tricky like this, prepositions can mean more than one thing. And I would say it can also mean in accordance with. So what he's saying is be baptized because you have been forgiven of your sins through your belief in Jesus. Baptism, again, is that beautiful, wonderful, powerful symbol that your sins are washed away by the blood of Christ. But we wanna remember that sin is not washed away by water. Sin is washed away by the blood of Jesus given to us through faith in Jesus. We do it as a matter of obedience, that is water baptism. But it symbolizes what Christ has already done because we are baptized into him because we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Think back to what we've quoted before. What John says is, I will baptize you in water, but the one who comes after me, talking about Jesus, will baptize you by fire and the Holy Spirit. Everyone who comes to believe receives the Holy Spirit And the Spirit is a sign to us and a sign to other people, like we see in Acts 2, that God is doing something supernatural and a seal that God is going to keep you in himself until the end because all of this that we're talking about, even though they are saying, what shall we do? We wanna see it's a response to the work of God and God alone. We respond because the Spirit's presence in our lives and because he moves in us in sometimes uh, intangible ways. I can't see how the spirit of God works in you until you start to express that. And so then that response manifests itself in literal repentance and a literal water baptism. Now I think when we read this, what can happen is we can read it as if it's some kind of four-step sequential process. Like, what do I do to be a Christian? Step one, repent. Step two, I get baptized. Then I'll be forgiven of my sin. And then step four, I'll get the Holy Spirit. And then some teaching that comes out of that is things like a second baptism. So people might say like, you become a Christian, but you know, you're, you believe in Jesus, but you don't have the Spirit yet. So we gotta get you the Holy Spirit. But what I wanna say is is that's not what we see throughout the book of Acts. Yeah, that's how Peter expresses it in this moment of do these things, but it's it's like he's telling us this is what you do. In fact, I wanna say in the book of Acts, those four elements of repentance or belief or change, baptism, the forgiveness of sins and the filling of the Holy Spirit are there every time someone becomes a Christian. But what happens in the book of Acts is they don't always get presented in that order. In Acts chapter 10 with the Samaritans, they 
exhibit that same gift of speaking in tongues that we saw in Acts 2 as a sign that they have the Holy Spirit and then they baptize them. There are others because they only believed in the baptism of John and so they, they were faithful to God with what they knew but then understand that Jesus was the Messiah and that that's who John was pointing to. They get baptized again and then are filled with the Holy Spirit when the apostles lay their hands on them. Things are happening out of order. We have like the, the Ethiopian eunuch who comes to believe, repents of sin and gets baptized but we don't have any mention of him having the Holy Spirit but it seems like a rightful thing to assume. Later, the Philippian jailer, Paul's gonna get a, uh, asked by the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? And Paul tells him, repent to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But then, like a paragraph later, they all get baptized. The point that I'm making is the elements are all there, but not the sequence. We have a common element of repentance, and it seems that that repentance of, of crying out, God, my way isn't working anymore. I gotta live your way. That's what brings about salvation and the filling of the Holy Spirit and that people who are saved respond in tangible ways. And one of those tangible ways that Christians have been responding for thousands of years in the likeness of Jesus is through believer's baptism. And that's what we wanna see is happening. So what do they do? They re repent, they follow Jesus, which includes baptism, and they were filled by the Holy Spirit. And now as I say, all of that, just a mouthful. What in the world does that mean for you today? What are you supposed to do about that? I would say you should repent, follow, and be filled. If you're living in unrepentant sin right now as a Christian, repent of your sin. I don't think you need to be rebaptized, but you do need to repent. Repentance is something Christians do over and over and over again in our lives. But if you're here and you haven't been baptized after your salvation and by immersion, I wanna say that's the biblical model. That's what we see happening here. And it is a privilege and an honor to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And we wanna invite you, be baptized as an act of obedience in following Jesus. And we want you to know that if you know Jesus and you are one with him, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul, writing to the Philippians, in chapter one, he actually gives them a promise. He says, he who began a good work in you will bring it about, bring it about to the day of completion on the, Lord, on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning, if you're in Christ, you're not gonna leave him. But he still says this in chapter two. Verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I wanna encourage you this morning, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. We want to know, am I a Christian? Am I that graphic before? Has my whole person, the things that I think, the things that I feel, the things that I do, is it surrendered to Jesus? Does my life look like what Josh is talking about right now? Somebody who's saying, my life, my way isn't working anymore. I don't wanna do this. I wanna live God's way. But also know that it's God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure.
God is working through sermons and through people in your life to, so that you might hear the truth and that faith would come by hearing, hearing the word of Christ as we read in our scripture, uh, public reading of scripture this morning. And he is working in you for his good pleasure. So I wanna encourage you, repent, follow, and know that you are filled with the Holy Spirit if you are a Christian. And if you're not a Christian and this is new to you, you've come to the right place but I wanna encourage you, repent, follow Jesus, be filled by the Spirit because God is the one who does all the work and because that is true, that it's God's work, his promise then is one that, is, that falls on him and therefore the promise is for all people. We must see that the promise is for all. Looking at verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter tells these people, listen, the promise is for you, even though you crucify the Lord Jesus. You can take part in the promise and the gift of the Holy Spirit because you can repent of your sin and be cleansed of sin and God will live in you. And it's not just for you, but it's for your children. It's for the future generations. This isn't gonna just die out, but people are gonna keep coming to know Jesus and even though I don't even know that Peter really understands what he says, because later in the book of Acts, he's gonna struggle with the fact that Gentiles can come to know Jesus. But he uses this term that he says, in all who are far off, that God calls to himself. And later, the apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter two, he's gonna call Gentiles those who are far off, who are called to come and be reconciled to the Lord Jesus. He's saying it is for everyone that God is calling to himself, this salvation message. And you can take part in that promise. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit. John tells us in John chapter one, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you bring to the table because you don't bring anything. All can come and that includes people like who Peter would never expect, like Gentiles. And that includes people in your life that you would never expect. The hardest, worst sinner you know, the gospel is for them. I think sometimes in our evangelism, we can think, you know, Joe, he'd make a great Christian because he kind of lives like one anyway. But we need to say, no, 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 the gospel is for everybody. Those who are far off that God calls to himself, it is for everyone. And here's why. Because the promise is based upon the giver of the gift, not the recipient. The luxury and the amazing part about the promise is based off the giver and what they have to offer, not the recipient. I'll put it to you this way. Vera turns two this week and she is cute as a button and in a lot of fun, but she really offers like nothing to the household at this point. She makes zero money, she costs a ton of money. She doesn't even sleep through the night, so we don't even get sleep. She, she, she is, fights with her brother frequently. She, she does what she wants to do. You know, she, she's a typical two-year-old little girl. But guess what? Her birthday is going to roll around and her parents and her grandparents are gonna give her more than she deserves. See, if it was up to Vera, what kind of gift she could get, the answer would be nothing. She has no money, no ability. She can't even get on Amazon and order anything. 
But it's not off of Vera. It's not up to Vera that gives the gift. But it's because we love her and her grandparents love her and people love her that she will receive gifts on her birthday. What I wanna say is the promise, the gift of the Holy Spirit is similar. What I mean by that is this. You're not good enough and neither am I to get the gift. We don't deserve it. It's not like, oh, I'll just do something. I bring something to the table for God and therefore he's gonna bless me with his very presence to live inside of me. But rather it's the opposite. The gift giver is so good, so kind, so loving that he looks on you and says, the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off that I call to myself. That's who this gift is for. It's for everyone who receives him, who believes in his name. I pray as we close the day that you see this final point. And it says this, is that we must all be saved. The end of our text, we say, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3000 souls. And with many other words, I'm not the only preacher who talks for a long time. Even Peter did it. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. He didn't just do it once. He didn't muster up the courage one time and share the gospel. He kept on going. I hope that's an encouragement to you, to my fellow believers this morning. Keep going, continue to cry out. And as he does that, he says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Remember, the generation he's talking to are the people who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And he's saying, save yourself from that crooked generation. Distinguish yourself from this world. And as we look at that, your generation, my generation is crooked too. Save yourself from this crooked generation. People who are under the wrath of God because God's wrath is real and it will come for those who are not found in Jesus. And so he cries out, save yourself. Now we look at this, the reality is, is this verse could be translated with a passive tense in which case some translations will say, be saved. Because after all, we know we don't save ourselves, but I think save yourself is a good way to translate this particular passage and what it looks like as we say, what must I do? What shall I do this morning? And may I put it like this, imagine all of us including the people who are sick, they get better, they come and we get all told that we get to go on this amazing cruise together. And what we don't know is the captain of this ship has done a really good job of preparing every lifeboat and doing everything we can to make sure that we are safe. And we all get on the cruise ship and we go far, far away, further than we could ever swim and we're out in the ocean and disaster strikes and the ship is going down and there is no way to escape that reality. The ship is going down the captain of the ship runs from lifeboat to lifeboat and he begins, to, he begins to yell and scream, save yourself, get in the lifeboats. Save yourself, get in the lifeboats. And you jump in and he grabs your children and he throws them to you. He says, save yourselves, get in the lifeboats, save yourself. And he runs around and he makes sure that everybody can get in the boat and he does all that he can. And because he's saving everyone else, he, like captains do, go, goes down with the ship. And he dies. And the Coast Guard comes out and he rescues us and we all come back and there's a news reporter sitting there and he 
sticks his microphone in your face and he says, how did you guys ever survive? Would you look at him and say, I saved myself? You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't go through that, even though the captain is crying out, save yourself, save yourself, get in the lifeboat. You wouldn't get there at the end and say, I saved myself. What would you say? The captain saved us. That's right. The captain saved us. He gave his life so that we could live. He saved us. Well, this morning, I want to call out to you. Save yourself. Hear the call of Christ, your captain. Save yourself from this crooked generation. As you think of that sin that is coming into your life, do not be taken away by the deceitfulness of sin and become hardened in your heart. Save yourself, repent, and believe. If you're not a Christian here this morning, but you can sense the Spirit of God working on you and He's changing you, I'm calling out to you, save yourself, repent, believe, be baptized, be filled with the Holy Spirit, save yourself. Because at the end, you and I both know that you're not the one who will save yourself. You will get to the end and you'll stand before God in glory and you will not say, look, I did it, I saved myself. But you will look at him and you will say, you did it. You accomplished it. The inheritance of nations is yours. You haven't lost a single one of us. We're all here because you laid down your life. Worthy as the lamb who was slain, you saved us. Glory to God. And so we do this. We live a life of repentance and we grow and we change so that we might be saved. You must be saved. Let us pray. Father God, we love you. We praise you for every good gift that you give, the gift of yourself on the cross, the gift of yourself to dwell within us. God, that is amazing that you literally give us yourself. So Lord, I pray for everybody in this room, anybody who may not know you, God, I pray that they would receive you, that you would change their heart in such a way that they would be baptized, not as a way to earn salvation, but as a symbol, an outward demonstration of what God has done on the inside. The Spirit of God lives in me and he has cleansed me from my sin. And so I want to show the world that I'm cleansed of sin, dead to sin, and made alive to walk with Jesus. Change us, God, that we might be saved and safe in you. And Lord, I pray for every Christian that they would go out and that they would take this message that we've preached this morning and they might share it with somebody. That they would have the boldness when someone asks, what'd you do this weekend? And they want to talk about the Super Bowl. That we might say, yeah, but before that, man, I read this passage in Acts chapter two. And that we would ask are you right with God? That we would preach the gospel that Peter preached. That people might look at us and ask, what shall I do? And we can tell them, repent and follow Jesus. Be filled with the spirit of God. Come and be a part of our local church. See what this looks like. Lord, we're asking for that and we're begging for that.
Save us, O God. That's in your name. Amen.